Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day that we can worship you. And I pray that you would speak through me now in a way that will bring honor and glory to your name and that Jesus Christ will be lifted up and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and that we would have a clearer understanding of who you are and what your plan is for our lives at this time of Earth's history. So I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for our sermon this morning is The Everlasting Godhead. I am thankful for the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost and the role that they have in my life and in your life. And I have found in my own study of God that the more that I study God, the deeper I come to appreciate who he is. And it's a bit surprising to me that I find it necessary to preach such a sermon, but surprisingly there are Seventh-day Adventists who are questioning the biblical understanding of the Godhead. And I am going to address that issue today. So this may not be the most typical sermon you ever hear, but it will certainly have plenty of inspired evidence to back up what I am presenting today. And I'm going to start with a statement in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 707, written by Ellen White, where she says, God will arouse his people. If other means fail, heresies will come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. So the first thing that I would say is this. It is so easy for us as Seventh-day Adventists to be in a Laodicean stupor where we stop studying our Bibles and we take for granted the truth that we have always held. And so God allows heresies to come in to wake us up as a people so that we will study the scripture more carefully. You may have heard of W.D. Frizee over at Wildwood from years ago. He called this the ministry of heresies. God uses heresy because we are so sleepy and we're not studying. And then people come in with these fanciful ideas saying, well, maybe Jesus really isn't God the way the Father is. And maybe the Holy Spirit really isn't the third person of the Godhead the way we've always said. And we're like, whoa, I better wake up and start studying a little bit. God will arouse his people if other means fail. Heresies will come in among them, which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. The Lord call, calls upon all who believe his word to awake out of sleep. Precious light has come appropriate for this time. It is Bible truth showing the perils that are right upon us. This light should lead us to a diligent study of the scriptures and a most critical examination of the positions which we hold. Friends, just saying, well, my pastor told me this is what the word says, isn't going to be enough. We need to know for ourselves what the Bible says. Now, speaking of heresies that are going to come in, there have already been heresies that have come into the Adventist church. And in around 1900, Ellen White addressed one of these heresies that came in. This is Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 200. In the book, Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. Now, then she goes on three pages later to say, few can discern, so this is page 203, few can discern the result of entertaining the sophistries advocated by some at this time. 
but the Lord has lifted the curtain and has shown me the result that would follow. Now listen to this. The spiritualistic theories regarding the personality of God followed to their logical conclusion, sweep away the whole Christian economy. Now, what she was addressing in 1900 was Dr. John Harvey Kellogg and his pantheistic or panentheistic ideas that said God is in everything. God is in the grass. God is in the trees. God is in the flowers. Maybe we don't need to follow the God in heaven if he's already here on this earth. That was a spiritualistic manifestation or misunderstanding that was brought in to the Seventh-day Adventist church. And amazingly, one of the messengers who Ellen White said was giving the third angel's message in Verity, Dr. E.J. Wagner, bought into this theory from Dr. Kellogg. And he read through the book Living Temple. He was on a committee for the general conference, and he recommended that the church publish the book. Thankfully, they lost the committee vote three to two, and the book wasn't published by the denomination. But here was a man who had been under the influence of God, Dr. Wagner, and of course Dr. Kellogg had been as well, and they fell into this trap of which was called the Alpha of Deadly Heresies, which was over a misunderstanding of the personality of God. And she says the Omega will follow. Now I cannot claim to understand exactly what the Omega is or what it will be, but it would make sense to me that the Omega of apostasy, as it is coined in other places, would have some relation to a misunderstanding of the personality of God. And I'm not necessarily saying what I'm going to address is the Omega, but what I'm saying is we need to be very careful about misunderstandings of the personality of God. Another very interesting statement, this is letter 240, written in 1903. Those who seek to define God are on forbidden ground. We are to enter into no controversy regarding God, what he is and what he is not. He, the omniscient one, is above discussion. Now, when she says omniscient, that means he is all-knowing. Those who express such sentiments regarding him show that they are departing from the faith. Now listen, friends, you better be very careful if you fall into a camp where you fall into following a speaker who says, I know who the true God really is, and the other persons that we've thought from the Godhead really aren't God the way we thought they were. You might just be departing from the faith. That is a very dangerous place to be. One of my friends made an interesting statement recently where he said, I find in every error the tendency to make plain statements seem complicated. Now, there are a host of heresies that have come into the church, and thankfully most people don't fall for them. It's always a minority. And of course that minority will then use the fact that Jesus was a minority, that the, most of the church rejected him, that Martin Luther was a minority, that the Catholic Church rejected him, and so he stood alone, and if it wasn't for him there wouldn't have been the Protestant Reformation. And while those things are true, Jesus stood for truth, Martin Luther stood for truth, and don't confuse fanatical heresy with standing for truth. When we start to take plain statements from the Bible and plain statements from the spirit of prophecy and say, I know it says that, but what you really have to know is this. And when it takes 50 Bible verses and 100 spirit of prophecy quotes to try to prove your point, and when we're done listening to you, it's still as unclear as it was when we started listening, there's something wrong with your theory. The Bible and the spirit of prophecy are clear. They are straightforward. They are easy to understand. And God has made it very clear who he is. There is an attack against the personality of God that is sweeping again into some portions of the church today. It is the doctrine of anti-Trinitarianism and the doctrine of semi-Arianism. Now let me define these terms briefly and then we're going to get into the word. Anti-Trinitarianism teaches, and these ideas are connected, anti-Trinitarianism, 
or, or the semi-Arianism idea. They teach that God the Father is the one true God. Jesus is his son. And the Holy Spirit is simply the spirit of Christ. So Jesus is the Son in bodily form, and the Holy Spirit is simply the Spirit of Jesus that can be everywhere. That's what they are teaching. Now, interestingly, semi-Arianism comes from Arianism, and Arius taught that there was a time in the past where Jesus was not. Semi-Arianism says, well, that's kind of true. Jesus was always in the Father, and at some point he proceeded forth from the Father and became his own being sometime in the far distant past. Interestingly, some of the early Adventist pioneers believed that. But thankfully, through a deeper study of the Bible, and then from clear statements from Ellen White, we have come to an understanding that these ideas simply are not true. That there truly is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In, and interestingly, um, one of the more recent variants of this anti-Trinitarian view teaches that the Holy Spirit did not come into existence until Pentecost. So just a few thoughts that are ro roaming out there. Now, let me hasten to add, don't go and listen to these guys, okay? Amen. Romans chapter 16, verse 17, 16, verse 17 says... I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. Now, I have done some study in this because it is necessary for some of us to warn the rest of the church, but that doesn't mean that all of you have to go listen to everything that they say. I would encourage you to study the Bible for yourself and refresh yourself on these things, but don't go listen to those who are teaching things contrary to the plain teachings of Scripture. Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 28, 19, before he ascends to heaven, go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Here Jesus speaks clearly of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now interestingly, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, and perhaps you have not thought about this with respect to the Godhead before, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, we read, and this is Paul at the end of his second epistle to the Corinthians, he's been to them once in person, and he's written them two epistles, and this is what he says, this is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. We have a... a a tried and true understanding that no single Bible verse stands alone, that we have the entire Bible to support every doctrine that we believe. And here Paul is saying, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, fascinatingly, at the end of the chapter, in verse 14, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Here he identifies the three persons of the Godhead. Jesus the Son, who's the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Here you have three witnesses. Now, when it comes to the Godhead, each person or being in the Godhead has two witnesses to speak of himself. The Father has the Son and the Holy Ghost to give witness to the Father. The Son has the Father and the Holy Ghost to give witness to Him. And the Holy Ghost has the Father and the Son to give witness to Him. There are two witnesses that testify of the other member of, of the Godhead. So each member of the Godhead has two witnesses. So in the very same chapter where Paul says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established, he concludes by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. 
If there were only two, if it was only the Father and the Son, there would not be two witnesses to testify of the other. There would only be one. And Scripture says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Let me just read a couple of other statements just to make things very clear. This is Councils on Health, page 222. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. This was before Jesus came to this world. And all three are identified as being part of working out the plan of redemption. Speaking of the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, in Manuscripts 66, 1899, Ellen White says, we need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. If you say that the Holy Spirit is simply the Spirit of Christ, or the Spirit of the Father and the Son, that's not as much a person as God is a person. Now let me get to a few points here as we go through this understanding here, or this message. I want to share to you the truth about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and there's plenty of verses, but I'm going to start in Hebrews chapter 1. And this is Paul the Apostle, who is the author of Hebrews, giving a message to the early Christian Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he says, God, who at sundry times, so he's speaking of the Father, and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also made the worlds. Now, Scripture says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So here you have Jesus, the Son, being identified as the one who created the worlds. And scripture goes on to say, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now the next verses go on to say, which of the angels is worthy to be worshipped the way the Son is worthy to be worshipped? Now if the Son is worthy to be worshipped, only God is worthy to be worshipped. Jesus is not a lesser God to the Father. He is God. And if you have any question as to the certainty of Jesus the Son being God, listen to the words of God the Father himself in verse 8, where the Father says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So God the Father anoints the Son, and he says to the Son, your throne, O God, speaking to the Son, is forever and ever. So is there any doubt that Jesus is God? And his throne is forever and ever. Does forever have a beginning point? No, it does not. Scripture is saying that Jesus does not have a beginning point. Interestingly, as you continue in the book of Hebrews, when we get to chapter 7, Melchizedek and his priesthood is compared to the priesthood of Christ. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this concept, but there was the Levitical priesthood of the earthly sanctuary service. And throughout the book of Hebrews, Paul shows how Jesus is better. In chapter 1, he is better than the angels. In chapter 2, he is better than man. And by the time you get to chapter 7, you see that the priesthood of Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood because the Levitical priesthood, those priests had a beginning and an ending. But Melchizedek, Paul uses an allegory or a symbolic illustration to say, look, we have no record of Melchizedek's beginning. We have no record of Melchizedek's ending because he is symbolic of Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, it says, speaking of Melchizedek, without father, 
father without mother, without descent, having, now notice this, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. So how is Melchizedek like the Son? He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, this is not speaking of Jesus and his humanity because Jesus had a birth in Bethlehem and he had a death on the cross. This is speaking of the divinity of Jesus. Jesus had neither beginning of days nor end of life. That Jesus has existed throughout eternity. And so scripture makes it very clear that Jesus did not have a beginning. So please don't tell me that he proceeded forth from the Father out of the body of the Father, which is what people are saying these days, in some distant point in the past, and then say, that's the beginning point from everlasting. No, it's not. Jesus never had any kind of, be, of a beginning. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, this is a very familiar messianic prophecy. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we read, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall, co- shall he come forth, Unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Now, some will say that the goings forth are the goings forth of Jesus being brought forth from the Father. But that's not what this verse means. The Greek, no, excuse me, the Hebrew word for goings forth is motza'ah, that's a feminine usage of that word, and the masculine use, which is very similar, motza'ah, is used 27 times in the Old Testament, and two of those times, it is used to describe not someone being born, but a king going about his business. And the best example of this is in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 3 where it says, then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rain unto the earth. So Jesus, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, who has existed throughout all of eternity, his goings forth as a king about his business. He came to Bethlehem as a babe. He was born as a king, and a day is coming where he will send the Holy Spirit to pour out the latter rain upon his people so that he can fill us with his Spirit so that the earth can be lightened with the glory of God so that Jesus can come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. So don't let people confuse you to make you think that he really did come forth at some point in the distant past. This simply means he has been a king going about his business throughout eternity. Now let me give to you a very famous verse. This is John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And in verse 59, do you know what the Jews did when they heard Jesus say say that? They took up stones to stone him because they knew he was identifying himself as the eternal, pre-existent, everlasting God who spoke to Moses saying, I am that I am hath sent you. This is the same Jesus that is speaking in the Gospel John. Now, what does Ellen White say about this phrase, I am? In letter 119, 1895, which is found in Bible Commentary, volume 1, page 1099, this is what she says, I am means an eternal presence. Could that be any more clear? I am means an eternal presence. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is saying, I am throughout eternity. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this next statement, I was really excited when I found this one. Medical Ministry, page 92. God always has been. Now, the anti-Trinitarians say, yes, that's the Father. 
and they say there was a time in the past where he was alone. Let's keep reading the statement. God always has been. He is the great I am. Jesus says, I am. Then she quotes the psalmist who says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth, and the world even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He is the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. I am the Lord, I change not. He declares, With him there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now, if you stopped right here, you would say, She's referring to God the Father here, and you can say that she is. But then the next statement. Notice what she says of God. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. What Bible verse is that? That's Hebrews 13, 8, where it says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. She is saying God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Scripture says that is Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. He always has been. He is the great I Am. And it's amazing to me that I would even have to preach a sermon on such a basic thing that God always has been. Jesus always has been. He is God as the Father is God. Amen. And in case you're not convinced, notice what Signs of the Times, August 29, 1900 says, Before Abraham was, I am. Then she says, Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent Son of God. If he is self-existent, he did not proceed from the Father. He exists of his own accord. And then she goes on to quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And then she quotes Proverbs 8, which is another verse that they like to use to say that Jesus was brought forth. But Ellen White helps to clarify. If you read Proverbs 8, and I encourage you to do so, it talks about before the hills was, I was brought forth. And they say, see, he was brought forth. But then Ellen White goes on to say, in conclusion, in speaking of his, his pre-existence, Christ carries the mind back through dateless ages. He assures us, now listen to this, he assures us that there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. Could that be any more clear? There never was a time, now what they say, is that, well, that means from once he was brought forth. But she says there never was a time. She doesn't use any qualifiers. She simply says there never was a time when he was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. He to whose voice the Jews were then listening had been with God as one brought up with him. So when Solomon says he was brought forth, Ellen White simply says he was brought up with the Father and there never was a time that they were not together. They were brought up together. They have no beginning. They have no ending. There has never been a time when they have not been together. Now, the most famous verse in all the Bible, even non-Christians know this verse. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That verse is used as proof that Jesus was begotten of the Father, and the Father gave his Son to this earth. Now, I don't mean to be, to take this lightly, but, you know, they, they try to say how God made man in his image, and so Eve was brought forth from Adam from a rib from the side of Adam. And so just as Jesus was brought out of the Father, Eve was brought out of Adam. And I have to, to say a few things. Well, first of all, Adam and Eve are male and female, and the Father and Son are not. So the comparison's already starting to fall apart. Secondly, Adam and Eve are husband and wife. Jesus and the Father are described as the Father and the Son. So now things are really starting to fall apart. And then thirdly, I, and I, again, I'm not saying this to make fun of people. I'm just saying this in all sincerity. Who's the mother of Jesus in a divine way? We're not talking about Mary here. So if we just use some common sense, we could have a better understanding. But let's look at this word begotten. When it says that God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
The word begotten in the Greek is the word monogenes, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S. Now, if you study language, it's not that hard of a word to figure out. Mono means only or solo, only, one. Genes, G-E-N-E-S, means a category or a type, just as we use genus to describe a certain order of animals or plants or whatever. You have a genus, you have a species, and so forth. This is where that word comes from. And what monogenes means, it's the word that is translated into begotten in the King James and in the Greek, well, into English from the Greek. What it really means is one of a kind. Jesus is one of a kind. This is not saying that he was brought forth or begotten in a way that humans beget children. And I have two daughters, and I'm about to welcome a third beautiful daughter into the world. And so I will have three begotten daughters. That is not what this word means. This word means that Jesus is one of a kind. He is special. He is unique. There is no other being in the universe that compares to him, and he is the only one that the Father could have sent to accomplish the plan of redemption. When the Father sent his Son, he sent his very best. He is one of a kind. Now, When we see Jesus described, for example, in the Old Testament, he is described in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as the mighty God, as the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Clearly, Jesus is God. He's described as the everlasting Father, but yet we don't say that Jesus is the Father. Yes, Jesus says, I and my Father are one, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is the same being as the Father. Jesus is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one and only special, unique Son in a divine way that God sent to bring salvation to this earth. And there has never been a time when He has not been in close fellowship with God, the eternal God. Now what about the Holy Spirit? We've seen some Bible verses and some spirit of prophecy quotes to describe Jesus. And actually, you know what? I'm sorry, I missed a quote. I I can't miss this. i got to mention this is Desire of Ages, page 530. Desire of Ages, page 530. In Christ is life original, unborrowed, underived. Then she quotes 1 John 5, 12, He that hath the Son hath life. The divinity of Christ, notice this, the divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. Now there's been debates in the church over the last 50, 60 years over the humanity of Christ. It's amazing to me that we're now having debates over the divinity of Christ. Are you kidding me? The divinity of Christ is the believer's assurance of eternal life. Now one of our Adventists, Um, I I wouldn't call him a pioneer. He was just after the time of the pioneers. He was a leader in the church, M.L. Andreas, and many of you have probably heard of him. He actually was one who believed that Jesus was begotten of the Father. And in 1898, Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, in Christ's life, original, unborrowed, underived. And he could hardly believe that Ellen White had actually written those words. And he questioned, did Ellen, Ellen White really write that? And he saw the original manuscript. Ellen White was still alive and he saw in her own handwriting that she had written those very words and he was so shocked that he had a personal interview with her where she indeed confirmed to him, yes, this is the truth, this is what I believe and this is what God has shown to me and Emil Andreasen switched from being anti-Trinitarian and semi-Arian into being a true believer in the God of heaven where we have God the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. Now, let's go to our scripture reading today. What about the Holy Spirit? Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 to 32. Matthew chapter 12, verses 30 to 32. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth 
abroad. Before I read the next two verses, let me say this. We're either on the side of God or we're on the side of the enemy. We're either gathering people for the kingdom of heaven or we're scattering them away from the kingdom of God. Jesus is very clear here. And so we want to make sure that we are standing on the Lord's side. And in verse 31, then Jesus says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Now it's interesting, Jesus says, if you speak a word against me, it will be forgiven you. But if you speak a word against the Holy Ghost, it's not going to be forgiven you. Is Jesus saying, that the Holy Ghost is higher than the Son in this sense. No, he's not saying that. What he is saying is this. Jesus speaks to us through his word in Scripture. Jesus is the word of God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And so Jesus is not with us in bodily form, so he speaks to us through his word, and he also sends the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, to drive those truths home so that when we are convicted of a truth or of what sin is in our lives, the Holy Spirit, Spirit, because he can be everywhere since Jesus can't be, the Holy Spirit is driving those truths home. And so when we neglect or resist the Holy Spirit who is speaking to our conscience, there can be no forgiveness if we resist the work of God as he speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. John 16 verse 13 says the Holy Spirit also guides us into all truth. If we turn away from the truth of who the Holy Spirit is, how can he really speak to us? If we deny that he is truly the third person of the Godhead who has all the power, all the fullness of the Godhead in him as the Holy Spirit, how can we really allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives the way God wants to, and so we set ourselves up to sin and blaspheme against the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost leads us into all truth, and yet we can't even understand the truth of who the Holy Spirit is. How can we then listen to the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4.30 says, go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, first of all, you can't grieve something that's not a being or a person. This means that the Holy Spirit has a personality and a person that can be grieved. And Scripture says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So it's the Holy Spirit that will seal God's people. And if we're grieving the Holy Spirit and saying, oh, I don't think the Holy Spirit is actually a being, the way the Father and the Son are, then how can you even communicate and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and life if you're denying the existence of that very being who is being used by God to seal his last day people? And I'm telling you, friends, I truly believe that this anti-Trinitarian movement that is coming into the church is being used by the devil to prevent people from receiving the seal of the loving God so that they can be filled with the Holy Spirit in latter rain measure before Jesus comes back. Because if you grieve the Spirit of God, you will not be sealed. Would it not make sense that Satan would attack the agency against whom we can commit the unpardonable sin and who will seal us? The latter reign is at risk if we deny the Holy Spirit. Let me show to you 
a, a Bible verse that is very clear about who the Holy Spirit is. Go to Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. This is a very familiar story about Ananias and Sapphira. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. So we know the story, Ananias and Sapphira, they claim to give all their money to God, but they hold back a portion, and then they say, oh, we gave you everything. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Wells it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Now look, notice this last sentence of verse 4. Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto who? But unto God. So Ananias lies to the Holy Ghost, and Peter says, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. The Holy Ghost is God. That is clear. Now, again, people say, oh, the Holy Spirit didn't come into existence until Pentecost. Go to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, guess what? You are going to be the mother of Jesus, who is the Messiah. And Mary rightfully asks, how can this be? Because I'm not even married. I'm a virgin. How could I conceive and have a child? And notice what the angel says to her in verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. It was the Holy Spirit that led to the conception of Mary in a miraculous way that we can't even really understand in a human way. But this is before Pentecost, obviously. The Holy Ghost was the one who helped to conceive Jesus with Mary. Desire of Ages, page 671. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. And then continuing on, through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. So it's the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, that helps us to overcome every hereditary and evil, hereditary and cultivated tendency to evil and to develop the character of Christ. Again, I read this earlier, Councils on Health, page 222. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. Friends, that's before Jesus came to this world. That's thousands of years ago. That's not Pentecost, way before Pentecost. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. Now notice the distinction between Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is Selected Messages, Volume 1, 344. Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding in man's behalf. But the Spirit pleads not for us as does Christ, who prevent, presents his blood shed from the foundation of the world. The Spirit works upon our hearts, drawing out prayers and penitence, praise and thanksgiving. So there's a distinction between Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit. Manuscript 93, 1893, the Holy Spirit is the comforter in Christ's name. He personifies Christ, yet is a distinct personality. We may have the Holy Spirit if we ask for it and make it a habit to turn and trust in God rather than in any finite human agent who may make mistakes. And a couple more statements, and then I'm going to get to my closing point. This is Manuscript 21, 1906. The comforter that Christ promised to send after he ascended to heaven is the spirit and all the fullness of the Godhead, making manifest the power of divine grace to all who receive and believe in Christ as a personal Savior. Now listen to this. This is so clear. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. Is that clear? Three living persons of the heavenly trio in the name of these great powers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized, and these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. 
I read the statement earlier, Manuscript 66, 1899. It's found in Evangelism 616. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God, is a person, is walking through these grounds. And I might add that these anti-Trinitarians are saying that the book Evangelism was tampered with. Do you realize that Ellen White says one of the last great deceptions of Satan is to make the testimonies of God of none effect? When you start to say, oh, her writings with tampered with because they don't agree with my view, you know you were on the devil's ground. Letter to 40, 1903. Those who seek to define God are on forbidden ground. We are to enter into no controversy regarding God, what he is and what he is not. He, the omniscient one, is above discussion. Those who express such sentiments regarding him show that they are departing from the faith. And I'm sorry, friends, those who claim to teach or who, those who do teach, those who are claiming that Christ has a beginning in the distant past, that the Holy Spirit didn't come into existence until Pentecost, it is my conviction that they are departing from the faith and they are giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They claim that this message is the latter rain message that will prepare people to meet Jesus when he comes. Yeah, Ellen White has something very interesting to say to those who claim that they have the latter rain loud cry message. This is Manuscript Releases, Volume 9, page 27. It was lit, written from Letter 20, 1884. Here she says, God is raising up a class to give the loud cry of the third angel's message. And that's absolutely true. And that's why God has this church here in Ardmore to give the loud cry of the third angel to this community. Then she goes on to quote Acts 20, verse 30, where she says, Of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. The, listen to this. It is Satan's object now to get up new theories to divert the mind from the true work and genuine message for this time. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of Scripture, a spurious loud cry that the real message may not have its effect when it does come, this is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth lightened with the glory of God. Friends, the fact that we have people in the church who have a spurious loud cry message, who are denying Jesus as the everlasting God, who are denying the Holy Spirit as a person, as a being who is equal with the Father and the Son, and then saying that it's the loud cry message. Friends, this is a spurious, false, loud cry message that tells me we have more evidence that the true loud cry message will soon be heard. And as I close, let me remind you of what that true loud cry message is seen in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1, where it says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power or authority, and the earth was lightened or illuminated with his glory. Friends, there is coming a time when the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is going to pour out all the power of heaven, which is all the power of the universe upon God's people, and we will be a demonstration in our characters of the light of the glory of God as seen in the face of Jesus Christ, and we will bear witness of what God has done in our lives, and people won't have to question anymore if we are a Christian because they will see it by the way we live our lives. They will see that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the three powers of heaven, the Godhead, those three are working in our lives and we have been transformed into the likeness of Jesus and our message then will carry effect just as Jesus' words had effect because no man lived ever as he lived. Our words will then have effect because we are living as Jesus here on this earth. And friends, that is the true loud cry message. The Holy Spirit has come to convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and he is convicting us of the sins in our heart right now. Listen, friends, don't think that you need to accept some new, weird, strange idea that goes against the clear teachings of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy to be ready for Jesus to come. You want to know what you need to be ready for Jesus to come? Listen to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, when he speaks to your conscience and points out sin in your life. 
That's, that's what's going to help you to be ready for Jesus to come. Not tra- chasing rabbit trails, listening to false Christs and false prophets who will arise to deceive many, teaching false theories. What we need is to simply get back to a study of the Word, a study of the Bible and of the spirit of prophecy, and a close walk with Jesus on a day-by-day basis so that we will surrender every known sin in our lives at the foot of the cross to Jesus so that he can fully use us to be his representative here on this earth. That is the true loud cry message for this time. And I just have to say that I am thankful for the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost because the Father loved me so much that he sent the only being in the universe who could save me, and that was Jesus. And I'm thankful for Jesus because he is my Savior who came to this earth and lived a sinless life to be an example to me of how I can follow him and be like him and that I can accept his sacrifice on my behalf. And I am thankful for the Holy Spirit who bears witness of Jesus and who convicts me of sin in my life. And it's amazing when you look at the three powers of the Godhead. Jesus came to this earth to talk about the Father. The Holy Spirit was sent to talk about the Son. They are all so humble that they don't talk about themselves. They bear witness of the other. Jesus humbled himself. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself, made himself of no reputation. He didn't come to this earth and say, don't you know that I'm this awesome, I'm the awesome God of the universe? He humbled himself, but he bore witness of the Father. And the amazing thing is, is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so humble that they don't speak of themselves, that, of themselves in such a way that it has led some to misinterpret who they are, but because of of the nature and of the character of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, they were willing to take that risk because they will be true to being humble and of showing us what it really means to have the humility of God. God is not here to puff himself up. He is here to show us his love and of his plan of redemption for each of us in our lives. And friends, I just encourage you, Don't be carried about with strange doctrines. Don't be blown about by the latest thing to come through. Stand on the more sure word of prophecy. Stand on the sure foundation of Scripture. Surrender your life to Jesus every day. And when Jesus comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, we can say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.